The first reading is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 20, uh, beginning at verse 22. may be found on page 1117 of the Church Bibles. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples away from them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. The second reading is taken from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, on page 1, 2, 3, 4 of the Church Bible. Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. It would be a great help if you'd have that passage in front of you. It's on page 1, 2, 3, 4, and it's Revelation chapter 2. Uh, Many years ago, when I was a student, I worked at the John Lewis warehouse in the lighting department. 
We dreaded the annual stock-taking because everything was recorded. You pulled everything out, and you discovered, to your horror, what was missing. The letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation are God's spiritual stock-taking. And it's likely they were actual letters to those churches, but they quickly had a wider audience. In this third and final year of our intentional discipleship program, we're almost at the end of studying the key doctrines and books of the Bible. There remains now the book of Revelation and the doctrine of what theologians call the last things, what God has purposed for the end of time. The traditional view is that Revelation was written by the Apostle John when he was in exile on Patmos. I think some of you may even have been to Patmos to see, an island off the southeast coast of modern Turkey. The church was facing a time of persecution and suffering, the period possibly that of Emperor Domitian, about 90 to 95 AD. Christians faced persecution then as now because they refused to worship anyone except God. In this case, they would not worship the Roman emperor. And the book of Revelation comes into the category of biblical literature known as apocalyptic, which means revealing. It's a revelation from God for Christians undergoing persecution. God was encouraging them with the knowledge that their troubles were not to last. And in Revelation, elaborate symbolic language is used to express the fact that earthly reality is not the only reality and that God will intervene finally and victoriously at the end of time. But back to Ephesus. It was the most important of the seven cities with a thriving commercial center. It was also a religious center with a magnificent temple in honor of Diana, the goddess of the moon and the goddess of hunting. What is the result of God's spiritual stock-taking of Ephesus? Approval and disapproval is the short answer, and both are evident. First, approval. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. The church of Ephesus has three particular strengths and qualities which are admirable and they are commended without qualification. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. It was firstly a church that worked hard. The church in Ephesus was a busy, active church serving God and the community. Their labors were widely known. Everyone was playing their part. A follower of Jesus should expect to work hard. The thought behind these words, hard work, is to labor to the point of weariness. If we're serving Jesus as we should be, there will be times when we feel really weary. It comes over me about sort of half past six on the light party evening, and I say, oh Lord, please let this end, as we have over a thousand children and their carers coming through the doors. Our alternative to Halloween is an extraordinary event. But I believe that for some, it will be their first contact with a church and maybe their first step towards real faith. But what hard work it is for Juliet and her team of helpers. We really need you. 
It's really worthwhile, but it is not a picnic in the park. So I'm going to ask you gently, do you play your part in serving God at St. Michael's? How would God assess your work and effort for his kingdom? The second thing about uh, Ephesus that was admirable is they kept going in the face of great difficulty. The fact is that the Christians in Ephesus had faced some fierce local opposition. The city was a center for sorcery as well as many different religions. And in addition to worship of Diana, it was also a center, as we've heard, for worship of the emperor. And Paul, who had preached against man-made idols, had been violently opposed by the silversmiths, who had made their whole livelihood came from making little shrines of Artemis, the Greek name for Diana, and we read about this in Acts 19. And no doubt Christians remained under suspicion and were unpopular. But despite all this, the Ephesian Christians had refused to deny Christ. They were steadfast, they were loyal. I know your perseverance, Jesus tells them. And later he says in verse 3, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. When he says you have not grown weary, he means weary to the point of giving up the faith. And sadly, you sometimes see that. Christians who appeared strong in faith but then give up, like the seed in the parable of the sir, which falls on rocky ground. Listen to how they're described in Mark 4. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. But that was not true of the Ephesian Christians. And here's their third admirable strength. It was a church that was orthodox in faith, determined to maintain its doctrinal purity. Look at verse 6. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know exactly what the Nicolaitans believed, but it's clear that their teaching was seriously mistaken, and they seem to have condoned immorality, and their evil doctrine was spreading through the churches in Asia. How did the Ephesian Christians respond to this? They were not credulous, believing everything they were told to be true. Indeed, Jesus had specifically warned against false prophets who would come as wolves in sheep's clothing. And in our first reading, Paul, in his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, spoke too of savage wolves who would come in among them. And note carefully what he said. Even from your own number, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them, so be on your guard. More than once, the New Testament insists on the necessity of testing what is taught. That is why I say to you, open your Bibles. If you have your Bible in front of you, you can test what I am saying, whether it is true. In Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he says simply this, test everything, hold on to the good. And Jesus declared that they would demonstrate that they were true disciples by their lives and their behavior, by their fruit, 
you will recognize them. And the Ephesians had tested those who claimed to be apostles. As Jesus said to them in verse 2, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. It was not just the belief of the Nicolaitans which was wrong, but also their behavior. And the Ephesians had not been deceived. They were able to distinguish truth from falsehood. Now, I have to tell you, with all the seriousness that I can, that this is completely relevant for the Church of England today. Are we as a church going to be able to distinguish truth from falsehood? Because there is falsehood within our church. In a letter to the Times in September, Canon Dr. Gavin Ashenden, a chaplain to the Queen, set out two opposite views about the nature of faith. The tension, on the one hand, between a faith that recognizes the integrity of the Bible and, on the other hand, a secularized faith which prefers so-called progressive values antithetic to the faith. He then considers the results of these two opposite approaches. The present ominous decline of progressive Church of England Anglicans in relation to the flourishing of orthodox traditional Anglicans demonstrates the difference. He's saying a church which teaches the Bible and lives by the Bible and seeks to obey the Bible will flourish. There will be spiritual life. A church which measures its behavior and all that it does by scripture will grow. There will be spiritual life. People will be born spiritually. They will love Jesus. They will seek to serve. But if you marry the spirit of the age, and that is your authority rather than scripture, that is the way of death, spiritually. And you can see that now in the Church of England. The attendance of the Church of England, the average size church, is 40. 40% of us paid clergy are retiring in the next five to 10 years. But St. Michael's, if it is a Bible church, will flourish. It will grow. It will honor Jesus, and Jesus will honor them. If we are able to live and stand up for the truth rather than what is false. It has always been thus. This is not new. We have been here before. And many Christians are there now. That's why they're being persecuted. And so I ask ourselves, are we zealous for the truth of the gospel in a similar way? Do we speak up for it? Do we defend it? even when its teaching goes against the prevailing culture? It's a profound question, which we're not facing theoretically, but practically. Now, you would think all that we just heard about these three great strengths that all was well with the church in, in Ephesus, but you would be wrong. We move now to God's disapproval The church had a very serious weakness. Listen to verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. 
The people had lost the love they had for God in the beginning. They'd forsaken it, like a man forsakes his wife to go with another woman. It's as bad as that. And this picture of the heart of God's people growing cold can be traced from the beginning of the Old Testament to the New. It's a constant theme. In the book of Hosea, the people's love for God is portrayed like the morning mist or the early dew which quickly disappears. So graphic, isn't it? In the New Testament, Paul speaks to the Corinthians, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's coming, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It's about a love relationship between God through Christ and his people. It's possible to be doctrinally correct, hardworking, spiritually gifted, and yet have no or very little love for God or his people. And in God's eyes, as he tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, that means we are nothing. We are nowhere, spiritually. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Canon David Watson was one of our greatest evangelists and writers. He died in 1984, aged only 50, and he preached his last sermon here at St. Michael's just 10 days before he died. And he wrote a book when he knew that he had terminal cancer, and it's called Fear No Evil. It's a remarkable book in many ways. Here is what he said about his relationship with God, to whom he grew very close in that final year. God showed me that all my preaching, writing, and other ministry was absolutely nothing compared to my love relationship with him. In fact, my sheer busyness had squeezed the close intimacy I had known with him. I wonder if that speaks to any of us here today. What are the steps to recovery? Let's go upwards from here. And there is an upwards. There's a glorious upwards. Verse 5. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Here are the three steps. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Remember is the first step. Your first love for Jesus Their relationship with God had plunged from a height where it had begun and they needed to go back to it. Those first glorious days of their relationship with God. I remember as a very new Christian being amazed as I read the Bible. How was it that God knew me and spoke to me every day? So exciting. What was the adventure as I opened the book? What was he going to say? And prayer was so real because extraordinarily God answers prayer. Surprisingly sometimes. We all need to remember that first love for Christ. If you feel it's grown cold, then take some time over this weekend. Look back to the cross. Our last hymn this morning is that well-known one. We may just sing it without thinking about it. 
but you could use it as a prayer. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory dine, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Recall, remember, repent is the second step, change direction. That's what we need, need to do. It's not just saying sorry. You know how children, they say, oh, I'm sorry. You know they're not. You've got to change. Recently, I was challenged by a speaker at the Burning Man Breakfast Bible Talks. He asked how much we thank God for all he has done and continues to do. And I knew that he was speaking to me. I'm not thankful enough. So in my prayers, I try and ensure that there's a time of thanksgiving. Count your blessings. And the third thing is do the things you did at first when your first love for Jesus was so strong and powerful. Now on the marriage course, we ask each couple to remember what they did when they were first going out and when they were engaged. Could I say a hearty congratulations to Mr. and Mrs. Ives? They were here just a minute ago. There they are, newly married. I think a round of applause for Mr. and Mrs. Ives. Now, you will have, as I know you have, Kenny, lavished presents, time, and money on your dear Patricia, married here at St. Michael's, to express your love for her. Now, a few years into marriage, you may not believe this, but it's easy to have fallen away from that and exchanged it for dull routine and careless words. And in the marriage course, we ask them to recall those early months and ask them to determine to go back to what they did at their beginning of their love for one another, and their love will be rekindled. As you come to Holy Communion this morning, determine with God's help to go back to the early days of your faith and your walk with him. Bring a red hymn book, if you wish, and John and I will just pray a brief prayer for you that God would set your heart on fire with love for him afresh. Now... The ending. Jesus ends these commands because this is not just a twee story with some solemn words. Look at verse 5. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He is saying that if they disobey his commands, their church's existence will be terminated. John Stott wrote this. No church has a secure and permanent place in the world. It's continuously on trial. The fact is, by the Middle Ages, the Christian testimony of the Ephesian church had been obliterated. A traveler visiting the village found only three Christians there. And it does not exist today. It is not there. Stott continues, Christ's warning to Ephesus is just as appropriate to us. Our own church's light will be extinguished if we stubbornly persevere in our refusal to love Christ. Many churches today have ceased truly to exist. Their buildings may remain intact, their ministers minister, their congregations congregate, but their lampstand has been removed. Let us heed this warning before it's too late. The warning is followed by a glorious promise to all who hear and obey what the Spirit says to the churches. Look at verse 7. To him who overcomes, I'll give the right 
to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And the word paradise comes from a Persian word which describes the private garden of the king. Only special friends were made companions of the garden to accompany the king as he walked there. Jesus has a very special invitation to every repentant Christian to walk with him in paradise, to enjoy eternal life with him in heaven, to have free access to the tree of life whose fruit was forbidden in Eden after the first human beings defiantly disobeyed God. Now, Mr. and Mrs. Martin, both of us have a passion for the West Wing. I'm sorry to admit this. Uh, It's a long-running TV series. We've seen it through all seven series about four times. It is, of course, the center of power in the White House. As the President of the United States rushes from one meeting to another, he would on occasion say to someone he wanted to talk to, walk with me, walk with me. And Jesus gives that same invitation to you and me today, walk with me. Walk with me, because I love you. May we be overcomers, judged fit by God to walk with him in paradise, as well as now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, first of all, for the wonderful qualities of the church in Ephesus, particularly its perseverance, its desire for doctrinal purity, and its love for you, and its failure, though, Lord, to love you with that first love. It's so sobering, and yet your promise is, as we walk with you, the promise of eternal life, walking with you now, today, and forever. Help us to recapture that first love. For Jesus' sake, amen.